2: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, May 6th. I'm Peter Cooper and we have Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Roger Hurst standing by to give you their macro analysis. But before that, let's go over the latest. Many countries around the world are starting to reopen their economies or are rolling out plans to do so. Let's examine a few of these countries' plans and actions, and how they're faring against the coronavirus currently. In the United States, many states are already reopened, or will be soon, and they're under a lot of pressure to act. Yesterday, President Trump and Vice President Pence discussed winding down the Coronavirus Task Force as the U.S. transitions into reopening. Today, though, President Trump stepped back from that and said that he would have the task force work indefinitely. Trump also acknowledged yesterday, even though many people will suffer in this reopening, America still needs to reopen its economy. And those who leave their homes and resume their everyday lives can consider themselves to be warriors.
0: I'm viewing our great citizens of this country, to a certain extent and to a large extent, as warriors. They're warriors. We can't keep our country closed. We have to open our country. Somebody said, oh, we could keep it for the next 18 months. We could keep it for the next... Two years. Doug Ducey's done an incredible job as the governor of Arizona. Uh, you, the people aren't going to accept it. They won't accept it. And they shouldn't accept it. We have a great country. We can't keep it closed. I mean, I've had doctors say, well, why don't we close it for a couple of years? This is the United States of America. I created with a lot of other very talented people and the people of our country, the greatest economy in the history of, of the world, the greatest that we've ever had. The greatest employment numbers, the best numbers we've ever had, the best stock markets. I think we had 144 days of record stock markets. And then one day they said, we have to close our country. Well, now it's time to open it up.
2: The U.S. is still battling a high number of daily confirmed cases, as they did in April. Almost half of the states have initiated a partial reopening at this point, with several more due to reopen soon. So we'll need to keep a close eye on the data for the next week and see how things unfold relative to where they are now. In the UK, Boris Johnson is expected to announce plans for reopening this coming Sunday. Originally, the lockdown was supposed to end tomorrow, the 7th, but on April 16th, Dominic Raab, acting as the Prime Minister's stead, had laid out five requirements in order to consider reopening. They are, one, evidence that the NHS can cope across the UK, two, a sustained fall in daily death rates, three, Evidence that the rate of infection is decreasing, four. Confidence that supplies of testing and PPE are able to meet demand, and five. No risk of a second peak. On the 28th, the fifth test was edited to make it easier to pass. So instead of saying no risk of a second peak, but rather a second peak that overwhelms the NHS. At the moment, the UK's daily confirmed cases remain at a sustained level, ranging anywhere between 4,000 and 6,000 in the last few days. For their daily death counts, they've declined slightly, but are still maintaining a consistent level of 500 to 1,000. Based on where these stats are and how rigorous passing these tests will be, lockdown could be extended for the UK for the time being. And for Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel has announced that there will be an emergency break enacted in case any of the 16 states of Germany experience an uptick in new cases. Each of the federal states have been taking control over when they will reopen. But this emergency break will help maintain the downward trend that they've had. Relaxing their physical distancing measures means that all shops will be allowed to reopen as long as masks are still worn and social distancing maintained. Schools will gradually reopen so that all students will return by summer term. In Germany's football league, the first and second divisions will start again in the later half of May. The federal states have been charged with creating strategies to reopen their establishments, such as restaurants, hotels, and theaters. Their daily confirmed cases have been demonstrating a strong decline over the past few weeks, as well as their daily death counts. Their daily net active cases have consistently been negative since mid-April. These of course are just a few countries, and their specific plans and circumstances vary. But as much of the world is making a synchronized movement towards reopening, it's important to recognize where these countries are in their battles against the coronavirus. It will have a significant trickle-down impact on a country's economy if these decisions to reopen actually encourage the spread of the virus and make it even more difficult to control. Now we'll turn it over to Ash and Roger. Ash?
3: It's Wednesday, May 6th, just after close of markets European time. I'm Ash Bennington. This is The Daily Briefing. I'm here with Roger Hurst from the UK. Welcome, Roger. Good to see you again. How are you? Very well. Thanks yourself. I'm doing great. So, uh, you know, yesterday, I don't know if you had a chance to see the show, we had uh, Tony Greer on.
1: Yeah, I did. I loved it, actually. I was, because uh, I'm always interested in, in sort of the, all the various perspectives in terms of, in some ways, it's a bit like when, when I look at things like technicals, I never look at them individually, as in on their own, um, but I look at technicals, and then I look at fundamentals. On their own, I'm never very good with either, but together, I find them quite powerful. And it's the same with with that is that I think the technical perspective and, and the short-term perspective, given the size of the moves, I mean, if you think about it in one way, which is a lot of people are trying to get 5 to 7% a year. Certainly, that's what a lot of pension funds are trying to get. If you can get 40% in a few days, then you should care about these moves. Uh, I think it's always kind of key to to think about that, that there's a short-term opportunity where you can make a lot of money out of a small move if you're trading it, or you can pick up some very, very big moves when volatility picks up like we've got at the moment, mm-hmm. or you're in it for the long haul where you've got to have, um, you know, you've got to have sort of the, the long-term um, glasses on. But the key with all of this, and I think it's something which I've mentioned before, I mentioned it on um, when I used to write Think Tank, um, did a podcast and stuff like that, is that framework is the most important thing. Regardless of anything else, framework is the most important thing. Raoul talks about it, Hedge I talk about it. A framework applies to absolutely everybody. A trade idea might only apply to 10% of the people you talk to when I was in, you know, when I was in the sales business. I'd find that maybe 10, 20% hit home of my ideas. But framework was the most important thing because everybody needs to understand a framework. And from there, everybody's trade ideas will be down to your risk profile, age what sort of uh, what sort of um, assets you like to trade in and those all play with each other and against each other but they are all part and part of the same thing which is the framework
3: yeah, I think that's very well said. It's part of the framework, and it's also part of having a diversity of different views along different time horizons. We actually had a really interesting and vigorous uh, series of comments uh, yesterday, which were terrific. I think we're, we're incredibly lucky here at Real Vision. We've got like the smartest subscribers and the conversation that we have in the comments is the rarest of all things is that unicorn where you have really intelligent debate uh, among people who can uh, disagree with each other in a way that's, that's cordial and collegial. And uh, we just want to thank you for that. That was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's it. I, I read I read the comments pretty much every day because not only are there some fantastic um, insights, but also it gives me always food for thought about what I should be looking at next because – I'm a plagiarist. Um, you know, I talked about the framework, but my framework is pure plagiarism. I try and read as many different people as I can. Mm-hmm. And I particularly read the views that I normally have a complete opposition to, and then I factor all those sorts of things in. So When I have a view on something, it's very rare that I go, this is a view and this is going to be right. And it's kind of being tribal. I know Raoul talked about being tribal. I think that's right. We are tribal in our views, but I think also Raoul is not um, you know, belligerently tribal, as in you can be tribal but you can change tribes as the facts change. I think being tribal can be dangerous because if people are very, very myopically tribal, they'll end up missing the opportunities. And an example of that, you know, one of the words or the phrase that people hate is ESG. And I've always said, whatever about ESG, I don't really care. But if someone told me ESG stocks were going to double, I'd play that game. I'd chase that take quite happily, regardless of my underlying view. And that's the thing is, ultimately, we're here to make money. There's about Well, there's probably an infinite number of ways you can make money, we can make money in global markets.
3: Yeah, and to pick up on your point, it's all about the conversation, right? It's all about what we're doing right now. It's all about this discourse. I'm reminded of the great Gore Vidal quote, I have nothing to say, only to add, and that this is a conversation that goes back and forth. We have so many wonderful contributors. We have so many different strands. Some things you may identify with on a really core and visceral level. Some things you may hear and be like, I'm not really sure that I agree with that. But the more you reflect on it and think about it, sometimes there's some value uh, in those alternative perspectives as well. And that's what we try so hard to prevent. Present, not prevent.
1: Represent. (laughs) That's right. And I think one of the big debates at the moment, and I think it's a very understandable one, is that um, there is this Debate between the economy yeah. and the de- debate between the economy and the equity market. Now, the equity market is not the economy. It can reflect the economy, but it's not the economy. And look, it's not just the the S and P. You know, people often think that the equity market. Is is the or at least in the US people often think that the equity market is the Nasdaq and the S and P, but obviously there's global equity markets as well, and they're performing in a very very different way to the US equity market. So there's all these different um, games at play, and maybe global equity markets and certain other emerging markets reflect true underlying economies much much better than maybe the S and P reflects the underlying US economy. And I think we've got to separate those out, and you can be completely right on one and completely wrong or right on the other. And you can have two completely different views versus you know equity versus economy. And it's a question I keep on posing and I don't have the answer to, but could I potentially see um, a depression in the U.S. economy? Yes. Could I potentially see the S&P hit 4,000 whilst the U.S. is in a depression? Yes. Is the equity market trading on corporate and economic fundamentals? No. And it has not been trading on those fundamentals for, well, some, some people would argue it never actually trades on fundamentals. What it used to be is it was policed by particularly active managers who were using fundamentals as the basis for investing, buying value and selling expensive stocks. Now, obviously, we get those periods like 2000, 2001, where valuations become bubble and everybody gets swept up. Japan, 1989. Mm. But overall, I don't think that, you know, the amount of time that a, an equity index is in line with fundamentals, is very, very rare. And I think what's happened more recently, however, is that fundamentals have been almost irrelevant because we've seen active managers hemorrhaging cash. So the policing that they've normally done has basically gone, uh, fallen by the wayside because up until two or three months ago, money was coming in, money was following rules-based systems like risk parity, and that just bought the market in some ways, it is anonymous, but also... Um, without any forethought for valuation, it had other factors at play. And as a result of that, I think we're now in a world where we've got to try and work out whether those fundamentals, or at least the fundamental players are going to reassert themselves, or as Mike Green believes, we're going to see even more concentration into those players who don't follow valuation.
3: You know, Roger, I think that is the core question that we're looking at right now. We talk about dialogue, we talk about conversation. You've just hit on what I think is the key to this. When we look at this market in a broader context, The question is, how do you reconcile what's happening in the broader economy? We see things here in the United States that are really grim, right? Literally outside my front door versus the relative, uh, sort of mild sell-off that we've seen in US equity markets. I'm looking right now, I think we're down 15% from the all-time high in the S&P. We're up about one, one and a half percent on the week uh, as of uh, midday on uh, Wednesday. This doesn't reflect the economic, uh, frankly, carnage that we've seen uh, in the US economy. But this really is the key question. And this is why the Tony Greer perspective is so valuable to understand. I wrote in the comments yesterday, look, if you want to understand the disconnect that's happening between what we see in markets and what we see in the economy, you You have to look and think and hear what's coming from the traders who are actually trading these markets, who are making these decisions, who are looking at different price points, who are looking at the tape and saying, hey, look, I don't really care what the broad picture is. What I'm seeing is demand at this particular level, and I'm a buyer. Uh, And you contrast that against with some of the bigger sort of strategic macroeconomic perspectives that we've done at Real Vision for so long. And I think when you put all of those things together, you've got a really Compelling way of viewing the world.
1: Yeah, I, you know the way I looked at it, and you know my framework coming into this whole sell-off, and, and this was a framework. None of these were certainties, and I said these at the time, so you know, not very good for people who are trying to make money out of it. But um, on my Refinitiv show back in early March, I said, "Look, I think the sell-off will head towards the expiry." And then on this show in the week of expire, I said, look, it often happens that we see a significant inflection point at expiring. Someone actually asked in the comments, and I said there, again, categorically, this is something which is not, you know, you can't fundamentally put your money on this. It's something which you should account for in your framework. And we got the low the day the first full trading day after expiry. Now some people will love to kind of say these generalisations and then, with hindsight, backfill themselves and say as say that they actually said these things. I didn't. I said as a framework we might see a low around those periods. That's my framework. And now we're going into a trading view at that point, which is okay. We're in the rebound. Do we get a 62% rebound? What are the volume like on the way up versus on the way down? Well, the volumes are half on the way up that they were on the way down. Four million futures per day on the way down, two million futures per day on the way up. So you've got to bring all these things into now consideration. We're at the 62% retracement on the S&P. We threw that on the NASDAQ, but we've had a phenomenal injection of capital liquidity from the Fed. But that is really money that's going to find its way into banks and then leveraged by banks into risk assets rather than into the real economy. The real economy needs the fiscal. So I'm now looking at both a macro viewpoint on the fiscal, but a trading viewpoint. And as I said before, if the S&P breaks 62%, then I have to start thinking very, very aggressively as to whether the central banks themselves with their liquidity can push us through the all-time highs and go to 4,000, whilst the real economy as, in, as in, uh, indicated by bond yields and by certain emerging market currencies, that's still telling me that the real world is having problems whilst there's these one or two assets and really only five stocks in reality, um, which are significantly up in the, in the NASDAQ, are driving the concept of the equity market. I, I divorced the two. But I trade one and the other one informs me on my future expectations. Yeah, and that's exactly the point, right? You just
3: tied them together there perfectly. That's the, the flip side of the, the technicals versus fundamentals, strategic versus tactical, macro versus trading view.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to marry the two together. As I said, fundamentals, technicals. I, you know, when I talk about a head and shoulders, if I saw a head and shoulders, but there was no fundamental change in the market, I'd be very skeptical about a head and shoulders formation. And I've seen so many of those fail because there's been no fundamental difference. But I've seen some amazing head and shoulders, reverse head and shoulders, where there's been a fundamental change with dollar-yen and I think the Nikkei back in 2012 and Arbonomics. Um, around t- 2010, you could see a very, very significant reverse head and shoulders in the ratio of spiders versus EEM, so S and P versus emerging MSCI emerging markets. At a time when it looked like the dollar was trying to break to the upside, these are some fundamental changes with great technical backups as well. Where you could say, "Okay, this looks like it's going to break." So I use both. I use both to inform myself. I want a fundamental story. I want a technical story. I want to see volumes in the market. And if the S and P blows out through the upside. I will start thinking about my own bearish argument, even though I still think at this stage, I'm correct on my view that this economy is going to come under duress significantly for a long period of time. But the equity market might surprise me in how it is even more disconnected than it has been for the last 10 years. And just finishing on that, remember those last 10 years, we saw almost no earnings growth for most of that period. We saw GDP growth. The most anemic yet we went from 666 in 2009 to 3400 at the beginning of this year that is an amazing move in an equity market where the underlying fundamentals don't really justify it yeah and that's extremely well said and the only thing that i have to add to that is look the
3: complexity of this conversation has to mirror the complexity that we see in the real world we deal with when we look at markets when we when we follow the we follow the news flow we see complexity ambiguity, and frankly, contradictory statements all of the time from markets, from policymakers, from news stories, and how we stitch all of that together and how we try and find and explore and have this conversation to understand what's happening in markets to build that framework, I think is the critical thing of what we do here at Real Vision.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and it's a fascinating thing because it's this amazing mosaic of there is so much to try and um, try and take on board, and this is why I say I plagiarise. I try and read as many people, but I try and plagiarise other people's frameworks and and marry them together. You know, the classic one is Bren Johnson's uh, milkshake. You yeah. look at that, there's elements of that that I completely agree with. There's other elements that I don't agree with, but I take it on board and I'm trying to work out for myself based on my own requirements, risk profile, my age. And that's how I then do my trading and investing based on that. Some of it can be short term, but most of it has a one year to often a 10 year view because I'm ultimately looking towards retirement.
3: Yeah, exactly. So we've been very meta here today. What else are you looking at tactically in terms of news flow?
1: Well, actually, not not so much in terms of news. So going back to the, the markets, I mean, and in the very essence of what we've been talking about is that um, we see the, the NASDAQ doing well, but it's the banks that keep on disappointing on the one hand. So today... When I looked at the US market, we were sort of flat, slightly up on the NASDAQ, down one and a half percent, I think on the BKX, similar amount down on the European banks. The European banks hadn't even managed to bounce 38%. I think they've got to 23%. In the US, they bounced 38%. Banks are still integral to global economies. And in some ways, if you want to look at the equity market and worry about or think about which equity market signals are telling us about the real economy, it's not Amazon, because that, as is, is, um a um, Quant Insights who I, I um, spoke to a, a few weeks ago, they said that basically Amazon is not a macro stock; it's not trading on macro fundamentals, but the banks are. Similarly, with certain emerging market currencies and emerging markets. Once again, if we look at the ratio of the S and P versus the MSCI Emerging Market, the S and P is making new all-time high, not sorry, new new highs for this move, which has been in place for ten years. Those are the sort of things I'm looking at for my signals. I'm sort of. Ignoring the S&P and the NASDAQ, because I do think that they're this separate beast. But outside of that, banks, Europe, I mean, Europe, and we'll talk about probably the ECB, emerging market currencies in, in its collection, and the JP Morgan index, the Asia dollar index, all these are saying, look, there are still some serious problems out there, even as we talk about coming out of lockdown. Right.
3: You know, before we move on to, a, to we have so much to cover. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your view of the distinction between the momentum that we see in the S&P and the momentum that we see in NASDAQ?
1: Well, the, the momentum is really, it, it's kind of a bit of both because one of the top stocks in the S&P, it's the five big names, it's the tech names. They, I think they're 22%, which I think is an all-time high. So the top five now is bigger than it's ever been. And that's obviously dry, driving the NASDAQ as well. So this is basically a five-stock story. I think there's something like um, if you take out if you take the stocks out, the rest of the S&P is down 28% versus coming down 13 with that difference being those five stocks. So again, it's, it's how you look at this. When we talk about the equities doing well, are we actually talking about equities doing well or five equities doing well? Because it's difficult to interpret that as a signal for the economy, you've got to look at these other things. So emerging market effects, I've said before, emerging market bonds, these are things which are not being distorted by particularly US liquidity. They're kind of freely floating. And they're giving different signals. Now, they're still doing better than they were, but they're not telling me that the economy has recovered in a dramatic way. It's telling me that there's still a very, very large headwind out there.
3: Yeah. You know, to pick up on a point that you uh, made earlier in, in that uh, piece, the, the question that I have about the the five stocks, and we all know the Fang stocks that we're talking about here, the big tech stocks, uh, the question that I have is, is that a momentum play? Is that just a sort of a bubbleish? ish a uh, trend following play? Or does that represent something that looks more like a, a perspective shift, a paradigm shift in the U.S. economy that investors are betting that the Google model for the way the economy is going to work uh, is going to be something that's going to be bigger, stronger and higher growth perspective uh, potential rather uh, than what we've seen in brick and mortar?
1: Yes, I think what we're seeing here is twofold. is One, the, the, uh, the Fed did come in with liquidity to hold the show on the downside and help the rebound, although fairly normal rebound. At the same time, we're seeing a concentration and an acceleration of the old trends. Bricks and mortar was always under pressure. It was always going downhill. And eventually, we'd have seen the move that we're seeing. But what we're probably seeing here is a four-year move in three or four weeks, and it's that concentration that's taking place. Now, the other thing to think about with these, and, and I've said this before and it's not happened yet, is that normally when you see these sorts of moves end, as in a bear market, you see the winners getting sold as well. And they were sold, but not in the way that I would have expected. In fact, when you looked at QQQ share outstanding, that's you know the open interest effectively on the ETF, it was increasing through most of this sell-off which is quite remarkable. So money was concentrating into these. But what we've got to look at here is this is the sort of fundamental story for these stocks winning market share. But you've also right. got to think about the fundamental story for people who own these stocks. If my balance sheet is impaired and sometime, you know, sometime in the future, I need to raise cash in the same way that we saw people selling gold, which has been one of the winners of this whole kind of scenario, people will eventually sell winners like Amazon, if they need to raise capital so we haven't we don't just think about the balance sheets of amazon we have to think about the balance sheet of the people who own amazon And if that's impaired over the next five or six months people will have to sell amazon eventually to raise cash
3: yeah so once again it's a technical story it's a fundamental story their momentum plays and as uh, mark Andreessen famously said software is eating the world
1: yeah i think so and these trends they're going to be in place for a significant period of time but that doesn't mean it should be a one-way ticket to the upside. There's, there's a limit. I, I think there is a limit on the, the cash that is going to concentrate into these names because if that cash is impaired, or at least the balance sheet that's been driving that cash is impaired, pension fund balance sheets, uh, pensioners balance sheets themselves, individual balance sheets, and other corporate balance sheets, which effectively are paying the wages to the people who are buying these goods, then eventually you are going to see – these imped. Remember, Amazon had to write down four billion in order to offset the costs of the coronavirus itself. Now, in that same time, they've been buying market share because they've been building the facilities to make sure they take advantage. But, as, but if everybody who's using these companies is going to suffer in the economic slowdown that I think is coming, then I do think there will be a day of reckoning even for those stocks.
3: You know, there's also the question about, you know, the extent to which uh, Mr. Bezos is using that to build out an infrastructure uh, for Amazon that is going to further impair Main Street, the ability of brick and mortar businesses uh, to uh, to function.
1: Yeah. And look, the other thing that's going to come out of this and again mentioned this before, but these are the cash rich companies in a world where we're going to be cash impaired. It's not a stretch to think that these companies are going to have to be taxed in the future when all this the dust settles. So the cash, the cash balances these companies have will be in the crosshairs of government, which then probably means that these guys who want to get rid of the cash balances might maybe rushing through early into some some and which effectively dilutes their model and buys market share, but buys market share in companies which are not as efficient. So again, there will be gravitational limitations. On the ability of these companies to generate unlimited cash,
3: yeah, and to shift gears a little bit here to something different, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I'm so glad you're on the show today is one of the things that I've been watching uh, is a story uh, here in the U.S. that I've been joking uh, that some of my American friends think of as uh, it's just ambient. but it's a absolutely crucial story because I think it's at the very heart of the European project itself. Uh, there's a, a a German Federal Bank ruling. Uh, about uh, an ECB review to analyze uh, whether the bond buying program that the ECB is engaged in has uh, has met various requirements. It's all very technical and very legal. I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they read this story. But to me, it's something that seems incredibly important to understanding what the, frankly, viability of the European project might be or what the risks to the viability of the European project might be to not to put such a pessimistic tone on it. What are your thinking about it, Roger? And can you help us understand from the European? In perspective, why this story could be so significant.
1: So I'm going to speak in very much generalizations here because there is a lot of um, uh, legal speak in all of this. But basically, what it really has been driven by is that um, the ECB can buy bonds and they can buy bonds from every um, every country in, in the eurozone. And they have these things called capital keys, which is basically, you can buy up to give or take 33% of any country's bond market. So you get to a limit. And very. That's about a year and a half ago. They're getting close to the limits. And remember, Draghi said, you know, we can have unlimited bond buying, and people said, oh, but well, the capital keys. But what he really meant was, yes, but if Italy just prints and prints and prints, I like, sells bonds after bond after bond after bond, and increases its bonds in 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 circulation by hundred percent, then with your thirty three percent limit you can still buy more bonds. Now, what they're really saying currently with this whole um, uh, discussion from the German um, court is they're saying, are you on your capital keys? Because what you're doing right now, Mr. ECB, is you're buying 9 billion from Italy, but only 1 billion from Germany. Mm -hmm. So you're actually buying too many Italian bonds, obviously, to help Italy. You're not buying them in the right measure. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you cannot do this um, ad infinitum. Now, I think the reality of this is that they've been doing it for a long time. It's This is a court case that's been rumbling on for a very, very long time. Like with the idea of whether the Fed can buy equities, there will always be a fudge. They will always try and fudge it, and the ECB and the Bundesbank and the German courts will fudge it. But the theory here is that if the German court is above the European Court of Justice, which theoretically it shouldn't be, but some people in most countries would say, well, actually, we want that. But if it is, then doesn't that break the whole concept of Europe? Surely the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, should be the highest form of, of law within the Eurozone. And that's being challenged right now. But it's been challenged before. I remember when I was at Deutsche Bank in 2016, 17, there was a similar scenario. And we all got very excited um, because of nothing else going on. And then it happened, and. Well, nothing happened. We're basically having that same argument again today. My one feeling is when you're going through a crisis like today, they will do everything to fudge it again because you don't want to add any extra pain to this current environment. So I think there's a bit of a storm in the teacup today, but this will never go away. This will be forever asked within the European Union or at least the Eurozone.
3: Yeah, it feels like a pub that's got a strict two pint per patron limit. But if you walk out the door and spend 60 seconds on the sidewalk and then walk back in, you're a new patron.
1: Yeah, and you know, they what they're trying to do here is is obviously Italy is desperate for this mutualization, and the the frugal four people like the Netherlands and Germany are desperate not to effectively ultimately fund the pensions of people in the rest of Europe. That's what it's ultimately about. You know, you right. think about you know you had France wanted to reduce its pensionable age at the same time that Holland was increasing it. You've got to have the same pensionable age, you've got to have pretty much the same tax. Um, system throughout the whole of the eurozone if you're going to mutualize debt. Very few countries want to do that. But in a time of crisis like today, places like Italy and Spain desperately needs some help, which means you're going to have to break some of the rigid rules. The problem for Europe will always be so many countries with different requirements So to come to a consensus is almost impossible unless you get to that point of extreme pain As we saw in 2012, where effectively everyone goes, okay, yeah, we'll let it go this time. And I think that's we're not quite there yet. I think, if anything, because we're not in the moment of pain at the moment, we're actually seeing these arguments coming to the surface. If we go back into extreme pain over the next few weeks, it'll all disappear again.
3: Yeah, you know, to get a pick up on the point of pain, as someone who's watching this at a very high level from the opposite side of the Atlantic, obviously, you know, the feeling that I get is there are places in in Europe right now, Italy and Spain especially, that have experienced a lot of pain, a lot of real human hardship, right, with this virus. It's been very difficult, and then you have uh, countries in Northern Europe that have fared better uh, in terms of the actual impact of the virus itself. But in those places, there's still a lot of collective fear, and if you're if you're a relatively wealthy uh, economy. The fear is going to be in the form of uh, not wanting to subsidize uh, some what might be perceived as another country's problems. But when you put these two things together, Roger, you have you have people who are on a human level have felt and experienced a lot of pain. You have people on the other side in uh, places like uh, Germany and uh, the Netherlands who have real anxiety about the fiscal situation. It seems to me that the procedural issues notwithstanding pub metaphors and all of that, you have something that philosophically starts to feel like a real problem.
1: It's, I mean, in some ways it's been that for 10 years. And what's also added to this is because the UK has left or should be leaving at the end of this year, UK is no longer paying into the budget. So all the countries that would be subsidizing are going to have to subsidize subsidise to a greater extent, which is adding to the angst. So the whole kind of that whole attritional um, lack of political cohesion that has been the calling card of Europe in, in many ways over the last 10 years is back at play and the way that these kind of the Germans and the Dutch might be looking at this is they're thinking okay it's not just about the pain today in some ways the things that we've been talking about with this whole experience right now is it's not just the pain today it's the pain next year and 10 years forward and you've got to start thinking about that and there is no simple fix to that. And just subsidizing one region, one specific region, is not actually going to fix things over the long term. Structural changes need to be made, both psychologically in Northern Europe, but also at the government level in a lot of Southern Europe. And until those structural changes are made, it's going to be very, very hard for it all to come together. Right. You know, you have such an important and
3: unique perspective, uh, having worked at a German bank for so many years. So, Roger, what are you going to be looking for uh, as this begins to unfold to get a sense of what's happening and how concerned we should be?
1: I've mentioned before, it's um, BUND BTP spreads. They're always sort of that early warning system. Um, And they've been widening out a little bit. They're not as wide as they were when this crisis kicked off um, and they're nowhere near as bad as they were in 2012. But if, if we're not going to come to an agreement, and at the moment, you know, corona bonds have been put on the sideburn. We're now talking about a one to one and a half trillion um, rescue fund. But it's still going to be with, you know, with, it's going to be loans with certain penal criteria on it. So you look at those bond yields and if the spread starts widening out again, you start to get worried. Um, the euro is a little bit of a tricky one because most people look at Europe and go, it's a basket case. But it goes down to, okay, if you thought the euro was going to disintegrate, does it disintegrate into being a euro for the southern countries, in which case the euro should be a lot lower, or a euro for the uh, northern countries, in which case it should be a lot higher? And no one really knows, and it depends, you know, which debt do you get will depend on your view on the euro. And as a result, the euro... That's been remarkably well behaved through, particularly even through the crisis of 2012. So it's very, very hard. So the euro is not that ideal. Those spreads are probably the best thing. And the banks, I've said it before, the banks are an absolute horror show in Europe. The lack of bounds tells you all you need to know. These are going to get nationalized. The debts have never been, you know, the debts have never been sold. And we're now going to see. A cash flow problem. So we're going from liquidity problems to true solvency problems within Europe, and it's probably going to happen over the next year. Any particular country's banking system that you're especially worried
3: about, or that you're following more closely than others?
1: Uh, no, I mean it's it's. I mean Italy's always had the problem. It's had a problem for a long time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one, look, the one that really matters now in a way is Germany, and it's the big German behemoths because Germany has been the stickler for, um, for that sort of fiscal austerity. But if, those, if German banks are coming to the point where the non-performing loans are so significantly greater than their equity, and they probably will, be if you take a five percent non-performing loan in a common or garden recession, mm-hmm. that's three times your equity gone. And they need nationalizing. It's quite hard for Germany to nationalize its banks, but it will probably need to do that and then say, but Italy, you're not allowed to do that, and Spain and Greece. That's the point where Germany would have to go, okay, we're all in this together. Now, they're going to hold off from that for as long as they can. But that's why I think German banks are the ones that we really have to think about and worry about, because it's German banks that could give us a clue to whether Europe will effectively say, okay, we're all in this together. So when it's your problem,
3: I wish you luck. When it's my problem, we're all in this together. The classic. The classic. <laughs> Indeed. So deep, far-ranging conversation. Roger, any other points that you'd
1: like to bring up? I think that you know, the, the interesting one is is the oil market, because you know, now with the value of hindsight, um, all that excitement around the may expiring we've obviously got the uh, we've got the june expiry is going to be coming up in mid may but it does look like most of the excesses that we saw on the downside in the oil market was to do with firstly the expiry and it being physical delivered because remember all the big negative moves happened on very low volumes in the may contract but also then we saw the ETS implode that have to roll from the front months to the second and third month. And then we saw commodity indices rolling from the first month to the second and third month. So I think that in some ways, you know, we've seen that bust um, is probably now behind us. It was a technical story. But the rebound that we've seen in oil so far, again, is a technical rebound from being oversold. I still think that we settle in a 15, 25 range on WTI, maybe slightly higher on Brent um, because it has less issues around its expiry. And oil I think is, and oil is that real world um, asset. But if we go into recession, one thing I would agree with Tony on is if we go into recession, you want to own the oil stocks because they have performed in both of the last two big recessions. They sold off early and then in a recession, everything else sells off like your, your NASDAQ stocks, at which point you've already priced in the slowdown in the real economy, but you're now seeing people take money out of the winners. So those oil companies, I'm looking at those. In fact, we had a bet on um, in Real Vision um, here in London, and two of us took oil stocks uh, about a month ago as our top ticks for the next quarter. So Mm -hmm. I put my money on this one. I'm slightly offside,
3: but I've got my money on it. So from European sovereignty to uh, the macro perspective uh, from the ECB back down to oil and the print of the tape.
1: Yeah, it seems like we've kind of gone all over the place, but in reality, we're in a world where there's so many things that are connected. And yeah, they're all connected. These are all the macro stories that are all coming out from the underlying fragility that has been in this global economy and global risk assets for a very long time. So it's a bit of disconnect, but at the same time, I think that the underlying stories are all adding these things and and intermingling them together. And that's what makes the conversation interesting. Absolutely. Roger, thanks for joining us. Great to see you again.